All right, if you'd turn in your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 1. We're in verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read 6 through 10. We'll do 8 through 10 in a couple weeks. Next week, if you remember, Pastor Joseph Spurgeon, the guy who's preaching at the men's conference, will also be preaching here on Sunday. Um, so we'll take a break. But we are in uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Uh, the book of Galatians is about the grace of God, the grace of God in saving us not by our works, but by his grace in sending his son to die in faith in him alone. Right, so that's the, that's what Christianity is, is you are saved by Christ and through faith in him alone and not by your works. Everybody agrees with that, right? And yet, the temptation is to consistently elevate your works. And you can do that even by having a negative view of them. By feeling so discouraged and so down and woe is me and Eeyore-ish. Because you're so dependent on what you do. And if you don't feel like you're doing well enough or measuring up to so-and-so, you're questioning whether or not you're a Christian. You're questioning whether or not God loves me. And Galatians is exactly opposite. But Paul begins this letter with the first two chapters admonishing, reprimanding. And I want you to consider, is Paul being gracious in these verses? Because we're all about grace. And every Christian knows that the one thing he or she must be is gracious. But I think... Hear my tone there? I think we almost have no understanding of this because we equate grace, graciousness with nice. And then we define nice according to whether or not you approve of me. <laughs> Why don't you go to another church? Why do you keep putting up with this? Because that's what you do. Your husband is gracious if he approves of you. Your wife is gracious if she always says yes to you, never criticize you. Your parent is gracious. You get it, right? Is Paul being gracious here? Listen for that. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Father, do not forsake us. We will keep your statutes. Father, teach us to keep our way pure by guarding and according to your word. With our whole heart, God, teach us to seek you. May we never wander from your commandments. 
Help us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to store up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your statutes. Give us attentive ears to the rules of your mouth. Help us to delight in your testimonies as we delight in many other things. And so, God, please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. And a couple items of background again. Paul notes in verse 6 that he's astonished, and part of his astonishment is how quickly they're deserting him. In chapter 2, verse 1, if you look there a moment, Paul notes a 14-year period um, after which he again went up to Jerusalem. And one of the questions in Galatians is, when did Paul write it? Did he write this letter shortly after his first missionary journey? Did he write it later on in his ministry, maybe after a second missionary journey? And I'm just bringing this up because some of you care about it. It really is not, it doesn't matter one way or the other of the interpretation of the, of the text. But because of what he says in verse 6 of how quickly they're deserting him, quick in relation to what? Well, quick in relation to when he had first been there. And in Acts 11 and on in Acts 12, we see Paul in this region in Galatia. He returns, and he likely writes this letter from Antioch shortly after this. So this is likely very early on in Paul's ministry. We're probably early 50 A.D. Paul's first missionary journey was around 48 A.D. So he had gone, preached the gospel, planted churches, False teachers from Jerusalem went there teaching, yes, Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. Yes, Jesus, but you also need to eat this and not this. Yes, Jesus, but you also need this, this, blah, 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 blah. And they immediately listened to him and turned from the gospel. So quickly, likely right after Paul's first missionary journey. Another note, in most of Paul's letters, I think all of the rest of Paul's letters, after his greeting, he'll have sometimes verses of thanksgiving to God for the evidences of his grace working in their lives. I thank God for you, and he'll go on about that. Not here. <laughs> he doesn't thank them. Instead, he expresses this astonishment that they've quickly deserted the grace of God. So he often expresses thanks to God for the church's progress in the gospel, here he has to rebuke them, admonish them for how quickly they're deserting the grace of the gospel. So, so no thanksgiving. Is that gracious? So what do we see in verses 6 and 7? Again, this is an admonishment. But, as Luther noted, as Calvin noted, Paul is much gentler than he ought to be here. That was convicting to me. He is gentler. He reserves his hardest rebukes for the false teachers. That's right. But the Galatians deserve to be admonished. They need to be admonished. So this is justice. He's treating them justly. He's making sure his admonishment is gentle so verse 6, they're admonished for deserting the gospel. Verse 7, he lays most of the blame at the feet of those who came and troubled them. 
So again, this is what we have to do as husbands, as fathers and mothers. We have to sort things out. Who deserves what? Justice demands that we treat each according to their desert. And the one who is, the one being tempted to sin needs to be admonished, but with a certain gentleness, while the one tempting, the one troubling, will receive harder. And that's what Paul's doing here. So that's what's going on in our verse. Uh, We note that they are turning to a different gospel. And then verse 7, not that there is another one. It's a distortion. So what is the gospel? Let's just get that plain right away. We ask this in membership interviews, and sometimes it's difficult to articulate. It's a question that we aren't often asked. But what is the gospel? If they are turning to a different gospel, and it's not a gospel at all, but a distortion of the gospel of Christ in verse 7, what is the gospel of Christ? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried. Three days he arose again from the dead according to the scriptures. So the gospel is the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And it's good because it's the news that turns us from enemies to sons. From those outside of the kingdom of God to those who are now children of God. And the only access into it is faith. That's the heart of Galatians. The only access into this gospel, into this good news is faith and not you. Not your works. Not your personality. Not your wealth. Just faith in Christ. What we see happening in Galatia is exactly what happened in the garden and what will consistently happen in the lives of Christians. That God brings his word, Satan brings others to slightly, subtly distort it, and God's people are always going to have to exercise faith on discerning what is truly God's word and what is a distortion of it. So that's what's happening here. So let's start with this phrase in verse 6. Deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Called you in the grace of Christ. So grace, of course, to us is the most delightful, satisfying word that we can hear. Grace. Isn't it lovely? I mean it. Isn't it a delightful word? It's wonderful. Grace is Christ. Grace is Christ. Grace is the Son of God taking on our flesh. Grace is the Son of God never succumbing to temptation. Grace is the Son of God enduring the mockings and jeerings and torturings. Grace is the Son of God hanging on the cross. Grace is the Son of God buried in death. Grace is the Son of God rising from the grace. And grace is God coming to us and calling us 
into his grace. And in the book of Galatians, we're going to see a contrast between law and grace. Not that law is bad, but that law can't gain you acceptance with Christ. Only God's grace can. Your efforts, your morality can't make you right with God. We are only made right with God, justified before God, by His grace as a gift. So that's what they're turning from. But called in the grace of Christ, that word called isn't one that we are that familiar with. This isn't mom calling everybody to dinner, but kind of. Kids, do you know this? That your mom's voice should be like God's to you. Same as dad's. But dad's voice is often more deep and strong and threatening, so it'll be more readily obeyed than mom's. Not that mom is God, but that when mom says it, it should be done. Right? Now, does mom's voice actually have the power within it to create what it says. If mom says it, does her very fact of saying it have the power to make it so, to create it? If mom says, please quit fighting, does all fighting immediately cease? No. Does God's voice have that power? When Jesus says to the roaring seas, be still, what happens? His voice has within it the power of God to accomplish what it says. When Jesus says to the little girl, come forth. Who's dead, right? Come forth. When he says to his friend, Lazarus, come forth. When God says, let there be light. His call, his voice has the power to create what it says. That's this call here. That's this call here. Called you in the grace of Christ. This is that time in our lives where we become a Christian. This is that time in our lives where we, maybe having grown up in the church, hearing the gospel, hearing the bad news of our sin, hearing of the future judgment of God, fearing God, and it didn't make sense, and it didn't take hold, and then it did. Or this is the time in your life where you didn't grow up in the church, and you didn't hear the gospel, and you didn't necessarily hear consistently about your sin and the judgment of God, and you just lived. And you lived however you wanted to live, and yet you realized the wreckage of it. And maybe through friends or coworkers or a program on the radio or whatever, you heard this gospel. You heard of the judgment of God. You turned from your sin to Christ. And all you're cognizant of is, I need Jesus. And I believe. And I don't want to live like that anymore. How did that happen? God called you. 
God spoke and said, come. And you came. Why? Because he, he called you. He summoned you from death to life, from darkness to light, from the kingdom of darkness to the domain of his beloved son. And this word grace defines this internal work of God's spirit of his beloved chosen people that when they hear the preaching of the word, however they hear it, they're summoned from within. God's voice is all powerful. He says and it happens. He speaks and it comes forth. This word grace defines what this calling is like. This word grace defines his voice. It's a gracious voice. That is, he didn't call you because you earned it. He wasn't sitting in heaven waiting until your good deeds reached a certain level and then he said, oh yeah, come on, you've done it. Until your tithing reached a certain amount or your good works reached a certain amount. His calling was gracious. It wasn't anything about you or your goodness or your looks or your wealth or your height. It wasn't about foreseeing all the good that you would do. It wasn't even foreseeing that you would be a faithful person who would make it to the end. It was a gracious calling. He came to us. We sang it this morning. Why did he do that for us? Why you? Why? What's the answer to that question? Why you? Because he chose. In love, you. You. It was a calling of gracious origin, not of works. Why draw that out? Of course, you know that this is a controversial doctrine. And the controversy isn't that he would call you, it's why not them? That's always where the controversy is. Don't your kids do that all the time? Why do I have to wash the dishes? We don't really outgrow that attitude, unfortunately. Why draw that out? Why does Paul start there? Well, in the school in Armas Day, we have a Bible class, and we went from Genesis to David, 2 Samuel-ish. And if you remember in 2 Samuel 7, David gets an idea. He had just built himself his palace. It's beautiful. And then he goes, oh my, I might have done this out of order. God still dwells in a tent. And here I have this palace. I need to build God a temple. I need to... Remember, and he goes to Nathan and tells Nathan's plans. And Nathan initially says, yeah. Right on, let's do it. That night, God comes to Nathan and says, you, you don't get the gospel, Nathan. 
I don't need David to build me anything. I, I'm God. I'll build him a house. I'll give him a son who will reign on my throne forever. So Nathan goes back to David and says, uh, we need to understand grace, David. And God makes this overwhelming promise to David of Christ's coming, that he would have a son who will reign forever. And David's response is, who am I that you would do such for me? He gets grace. The synapses of his brain are rewired. His heart is filled, not with what he can do for God, but awe that God would do it for him. Who am I? There's nothing in me that would cause you to do this for me. Who am I? That's why we have to draw this doctrine out. So that you and I get our hearts and brains rewired so that we constantly can't believe that we get to be here. So that you get over yourself and all of your complaining and nitpicking about every little thing that you're just happy to be here. Don't you love people who are like that? They're just happy to be here. Sometimes you think they're, they're dumb, but they're not. They're just much better than you. <laughs> they're just happy to be here. And the only way that you get over yourself is by realizing there's nothing in yourself that caused God to pick you. It's all grace. And the only response to that grace is, who am I? Not why. Who am I that would cause you to do such for me, oh God? Who am I? And what the Galatians were being tempted to turn from is, it's free to you got to pay for it. Not who am I, but look at me, God. Look what I've done. And so David's got some tough words for him. Now, he has to have tough words because there are some who trouble you. In verse 7, but there are some who trouble you. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. Do you have the faith to believe that? I don't know, it's probably been 12 years ago, um, Ayn Rand's book, Atlas Shrugged. For some reason it, yeah, I, I've listened to it a couple times. I think it's really enjoyable. But uh, it was going around, I don't know, I'd never read it, never heard of it, so I listened to it. And one of the striking realities of the book is there's a woman in the book who's very gifted and and works very hard and wants to see her company grow and do it the right way. And she constantly neglects the reality that her brother and many others only exist to sabotage it. Now the book is kind of conservative versus liberals. And the liberals always want to tear it down. And she just can't believe that there are human beings like that. Who exist to cause trouble. And who will destroy the good work that you're doing. And partway through the book, she finally has this awakening that there are people like that. Because before she'd always lived and worked and made decisions based on if that wasn't true. 
And she couldn't believe it, and then she believed it. And you know that we will always, always meet people, have people, even within us, that all they want to do is cause trouble for you and for us. They're troublers. Troublers of God's people from within. What trouble? Well, the people. There's some who want to trouble you. What kind of people? People who confess Christ. These troublers are Christians, church members, baptized, take the Lord's Supper, teach Sunday school, have a million views on Facebook. They outwardly seem safe. Their doctrine seems good. But they cause trouble. They're troublers. In our day, this is much more possible. In Paul's day, they had to walk or take a ship from Jerusalem to the region of Galatia. It was quite an undertaking. Doesn't that help you understand the doctrine of sin? Remember when Jesus said that people would travel across the sea to make sons of hell? They'd go to incredible lengths to cause people trouble. Spiritual trouble. But in our day, you just have to take out your phone and look at Christian teachers who are so subtly wrong. So we have media that you have access to. And yet you don't have a category that some of them, many of them, are actually distorters of the gospel and want nothing but to trouble God's people and draw you away after them. And then from within our own church, Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 to pay careful attention to themselves and to others. Why? Because from within themselves would arise wolves, troublers of God's people. And look how urgent this language is. I am astonished. You're deserting him. You're turning to a different, false, distorted gospel. This trouble is temporal. It will trouble the church. It is troubling the relationships between people in the church. The fruit of this trouble is relational discord, relational disharmony, enmity, envy, strife, division. So there will be temporal trouble, but there will also be eternal. So this is very serious. So the need is for discernment. 
the very thing that Christians often refuse to do because we're often decent people, nice people, and don't want to think that there are troublers. A very sad, terrible reality. It's not true of all of you. Some of you over-exercise your discernment muscles. (laughs) But most often... Christians refuse to exercise any kind of discernment. You operate under the impression that if it's Christian, it must be fine. It must be good. It must be helpful. That every pastor, every church, every Christian media person. And haven't we seen over and over and over again those celebrity pastors, those big name pastors are not what you think they are not who you think they are. And look how easily, how quickly these Galatians are snookered. How quickly. No discernment. So we need discernment. We need to ask for it. You need to have a functioning understanding of the biblical doctrine of sin and how it works out in real life. That always within the church, we will have those with bad motives that they may not even be aware of. This doesn't mean we need to be jaded and cynical. But you need to have the faith to at least ask yourself, is that really biblical? And then go search it out. Is that true? You need to be especially doubly discerning with online kind of people. Because you have no idea of their lives. You have no idea of the condition of their marriages. You have no idea of their care for their children. You have no idea of their use of the hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in their finances that they're generating by you engaging with them. You don't know them at all. And I think that's part of the reason why you like them so much. Because you know me, and you know Jeff, and you know Mark, and you know our elders, and you know our deacons, and you know what we're like. And we're not clean and neat and the beautiful people. But those on the internet are beautiful people. John MacArthur. You don't know him at all, do you? But that's part of why. I'm not saying he's an evil man, but I know he's one that you guys like. So why would I pick somebody that's easy, Mark? Or Doug Wilson? Or John Stott? You don't know these men, do you? But you'll just take it in. But with us... You'll question us. You'll, you'll have a lot of discernment with your mom and dad, but almost nobody, none with your friends. So I think our lack of exercising discernment is attached to our hatred of authority. We despise authority. And so anybody who actually has personal authority, we will scrutinize to the hilt. But somebody who doesn't have authority, but still kind of, you know, does what the people that have authority, we will not scrutinize at all because we hate authority. So be careful. 
Don't be too wise for yourself, too accepting. And so, is what Paul doing here gracious? We are often very fickle. We lack any kind of loyalty. We're so quick to move from one thing to the next. And so Paul must admonish them. Look at chapter 6, verse 1, briefly, as we close up here. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Is what Paul is saying here a spirit of gentleness? I am astonished at you. I cannot believe how quickly you're departing. Christ. Is that the spirit of gentleness that he talks about in 6.1 or is Paul kind of like forgotten what he wrote in chapter 1 and in chapter 6 he's rebuking himself? What I want to get at is what the book of Proverbs consistently tells you is that a wise person will readily accept the rebuke of a wise man, but a fool will constantly reject it. And you know how fools reject correction, right? Do you know how fools reject correction? It isn't by rejecting what the person actually says, the substance of it. How do they reject it? Come on. That was the wrong tone. (laughs) You're being too harsh. Paul being too harsh here. That's how you reject love. That's how you become a fool. You won't be bothered by the actual information being portrayed or given to you in love. You'll ad hominem attack the person. Oh, he's just mean. You're just arrogant. Your tone was too harsh. You need to be nicer. (laughs) We're so proud, aren't we? Oh, my goodness. So that's what Paul's doing. Why? He loves them. He sees the, the pain happening in that church and the fighting and the envy and the rivalries and the dissensions and the jealousies, and he loves them. He sees that they're deserting Christ. They're being disloyal, not to him, but to Christ. And so where do you need to be poked in the eye? Where do you need somebody to love you enough to rebuke you? And will you accept it? If somebody comes to you and says, I don't think you should be dating him. I don't think you should be dating her. It's not a Christian. Will you listen? If you as a young woman are dressing immodestly, tight-fitting yoga pants, Sorry if you're wearing yoga pants. I'm not pointing this at anybody. But if you are, please don't. It's very hard for men. And another godly woman comes to you and says, can I talk to you? You're showing too much skin. I don't know how women do that with each other. So would you listen? 
Or if you're somebody who has been coming to neighborhood small groups or to worship and you've stopped and somebody loves you enough to come to you and ask you about that and call you on it, will you listen? If you're a parent who consistently struggles to keep order among your children and somebody cares for you enough to say, can we help you there? Would you accept it? If you're a man who it's obvious that you are not cherishing your wife, that you're cold to her, you don't have relational intimacy with her, would you be all right with me coming to you and asking you about that? Another way to say it is, would you accept that as grace? Is that grace? Does your definition of grace include what Paul is here doing? This is a gracious thing. It's truth and love. It's to care for them, to bring them back from their desertion, to protect them from wolves. This is the grace of God. It is a kindness of God. It is an undeserved gift from God. And there's likely nothing that we despise more. Let's pray. Father, help us here. Help us to accept this kind of this kind of gentle restoration that admonishes. Help us to do this for each other. Help us to see it as grace. Expand our definition of what grace is. But we do praise you that our salvation, your saving of us is grace from beginning to end. Praise you that you graciously call us from death to life, from enemy to friend. Praise you that your grace is sufficient for us from beginning to end. And yet give us faith to realize that this grace will be lived, will take the form of other people and will sometimes take the form of others telling us where we're wrong. And so help us to be that for each other, to welcome that with each other. Give us strength as pastors and elders and deacons and friends and older, wiser, godlier mothers to do that for each other. That We might be helped from this day till that. We lift this all up to you and ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.